Good morning. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. We are in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your word. And I just pray, Lord, that that your word, Lord, even as it's declared and it goes forth, Lord, would be just absorbed, God, into our hearts that we would let it do its work, Lord, in our lives. God, we just, uh, we need you, Lord. We come here because we want to change. We come here because we, we recognize that, that you are God. You, you are worthy of being submitted to and listened to and obeyed, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, that even as your word goes forth this morning, we would not only be listeners but doers of your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. This evening at our 6.30 service, we have communion. So it's an important uh, time for uh, the church family. So please come and join us uh, for communion uh, tonight at 6.30. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that Jesus is? That is the most important question that you'll ever have to answer. You know, most questions that we get in life, if we don't want to answer, we can just manage not to. If we go over to someone's house for dinner and they serve us dinner and we're eating their tuna casserole or whatever and we're thinking to ourselves, you know, I don't know if I can take this. I don't, I really don't know. And, you know, we're trying to put a smile on our face and, and, you know, and, but they ask us, so how do you like my casserole? It's a new recipe, you know, and we'll say something like, well, you know, it's, it's different. 
It's it's unique uh, sort of deal. I I remember when uh, Steffi and I, uh, when we just got married, we uh, one of our first major purchases was a very large lazy boy. It was pink. Single guys, if you think you're going to get married, you can like keep all those black sofas and chocolate brown bedspreads. I got news for you. If you think you can keep those flower patterns off the curtains, forget it because the pink is coming, right? Okay, the flowers, it's coming. And then, and then when you have four daughters like I, your, your whole house turns into a dollhouse. I mean, that's what it's like. But anyway, we got a big pink chair and, and, uh, my, uh, college roommate came over with his wife and uh, he sat down and I said, so what do you think of our new chair? And they're like, it's pink. You know, and, and, and so, you know, we, uh, there's a lot of questions we can dodge, we can beat around the bush, but not so with the question that Jesus asks his disciples in Matthew 16, 15. It says, who, who do you say? that I am. The Bible says every human being will have to answer that question. Who do you say uh, that I am? You know, Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 says this. It says Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above <coughs> Every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone's given an opportunity to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, speaks of Jesus knocking at the door of the heart of man. Jesus says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And then it says, anyone, uses the word anyone. A lot of people think that verse was talking to the church, so it only applies to the church. Not so. It says, anyone who opens the door, he says, I will come in and, and dwell and abide, sup with uh, him. And so, many of you are familiar with this verse, and, and, and you may have wondered, well, you know, who, who would ever, why on earth would ever... Would there ever be Jesus knocking at the, the door of someone's heart and they not let him in? I mean, why would they not let Jesus in? And, and who in their right mind uh, would not let him in? Well, the answer is this. The, the, knocking, the knocking that Jesus refers to is not a, a literal knocking. It's not like Jesus going, you know, in the middle of the night. It's, it's not like that. The knocking is really, it's, it's, it's the voice, the still small voice of, of Jesus that he's asking every man and woman in the world, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That's the knock that every human being hears on the door of their heart. Now, there is only one answer that is the equivalent of letting him in. And, and there's just one, and it's the one Peter gave. You are Christ. You are the Son of the living God. If any man answers in that way, Jesus will come in and, and live in their hearts forever, the Bible says. 
Now, any other answer is the equivalent of keeping him out. Well, you're a great example, and I I love having you as an example in in my life. You're a great, you were a great moral leader. You were a prophet. You, You have, by your example, the entire world has been made more righteous. But answering in that way is the equivalent of keeping him out, leaving him at the door, knocking. It's a sad picture, isn't it? God at the door of someone's heart, knocking and not being let in. But Jesus isn't going to force his way into anyone's heart who does not want uh, him to be there as uh, the Christ, the Son of the living God, the, uh, as Lord and King. And I'm in Second uh, Samuel in my personal uh, devotion time, and I've been in chapter 17 through 20. And uh, when there was a rebellion in Israel, uh, Absalom, the son of David, he headed, he led an insurrection, a rebellion uh, against King David, and and David actually leaves the throne. He leaves it for his son Absalom. I'd read this many times, but it never really dawned on me. I guess I never noticed that he literally left the throne for his son. In fact, when he was leaving Jerusalem, the he would run into some people and, and he ran into some people and said, look, why are you coming with me? Because they wanted to come with him. Go back and submit to the new king. He left. In fact, he was taking the Ark of Covenant with him and then it dawned on him, what's well, not right that I should have it. I'm not going to be king anymore. And so he, he even sent the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And he uh, went out and he crossed the Jordan. He went to the east side of Jordan where he just stayed there for um, a while and uh, Absalom gathers an army and crosses the Jordan and, and, and goes to uh, fight King David and Absalom's army is defeated and Absalom is killed and all the uh, army scatters. But interestingly enough, David does not go back to reclaim his throne. He stays there. He stays outside of Israel on the east side of the Jordan. He refuses to come back unless Israel invites him back. And he, he sent an emissary back and, and invited them to do that, sort of knocking on the door of, of, of their heart. He was well provided for there. And he, he was perfectly willing to stay out there uh, because he knew, he knew that if he were to go back to Israel without them asking him back, If the people had no interest in in him being their king, if they refused to recognize him as their king, well, really, he wouldn't be their king. And and it would be a disaster for the children of Israel and for himself. And and David needed to hear the words from the people of Israel. You're our king. David, you're our king. Come back. He needed to hear that. And now virtually every Bible commentator will tell you that King David is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Like David did with the Israelites, so Jesus does with you and I. Who do you say that I am? 
Am I your king? Now the Israelites knew full well what would happen if they responded to David that he was their king. They knew what would happen. They knew that telling David he was their king was the equivalent of opening the door of the nation of Israel to David. They knew he would come back over the Jordan. They knew that he would come right to Jerusalem, take his place on the throne, that they would be subject to him, and that he would rule over their lives. And that is what happened. The people of Israel sent, uh, sent out uh, to uh, to David, sent another emissary back. And it was interesting, David insisted, uh, at first, only 11 of the tribes wanted to invite him back. And David said, I'm not going. They need to invite me back as, as, a, a, as one man. And so when that final tribe you know, stopped holding out and, and they were able to ask him back as one man, they, they sent him uh, they, they sent to him and, and they invited him back and, and he came back and he took his place on the throne and he ruled over them. And so similarly, when Jesus' uh, disciples were asked by Jesus in Matthew 16, verse um, 16, he said, who do you say that I am? They knew what he meant. They knew what he meant. And when he asks you and me, you should know what he means. And I think you do know what he means. The disciples knew they had the freedom to answer like uh, many others had answered. Oh, he's a, uh, you're a prophet. You're a great teacher. You're a great uh, man. Uh, but they also knew, just like Israel did, that if they answered in that way, if they refused to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the Son of the living God, as, as King... They knew that would mean anarchy in their lives. They, they knew that, that if they walked away from Jesus at this point, yes, they would have their freedom in a small, puny, human kind of way. They would keep on to their uh, freedom, but their lives would fall apart. On the other hand, they knew that if they answered the truth, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, their King, that Jesus would come into their lives and rule over them and their lives would not be their own any longer. A good thing. They knew what it meant. They knew what it meant. Verse 24, Jesus, this is something that Jesus says repeatedly throughout the gospel. This is what it means uh, to declare that Jesus is... is the Son of the living God in your life. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. They knew that's what it meant. Peter knew that's what it meant. And thank God he counts the costs, he answers, he affirms the truth. You're the king. You're the son of the living God. And then in verse 16, 17, Jesus, it says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So it was God who brought him to the place of making that confession. If you've come into the place in your life where you have made Jesus your Lord and Savior, King, 
Don't think for a second that's because you're more spiritual than anybody else, that you have more wisdom or insight or uh, that you are righteous or more holy. You were brought to that place by God, by your Father in heaven, by His grace. He loves you so much. He wants a relationship with you so much. He, 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 he wants to love you and care for you and meet all your needs and, and all your desires through Him uh, so much. He wants to love you as if you're the only person on, uh, on the face of the earth. He wants to be your king. He wants to rule over you as a loving, gracious, faithful, merciful Father. He, God, brings you to the place where you say, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Come into my life. God brought you to that place. And then in verse 18, it says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, the word Peter in Greek is Petras. It means a piece of rock or a stone, like something you would pick up and throw. A little stone, a little rock, if you will. So substituting uh, Petrus for Peter here, Jesus, Jesus is saying here, he's saying, and, and, and you are Petrus, little rock. And on this rock, now that word on this rock, that word's a different word. That word is the word Petra. As Scott announced uh, about the Israel trip, some of you may have gone down to gone to, down to Petra, which may be in Jordan. I think is it in Jordan? I think so. But but there's that's what a rock is. Okay, that's this word, Petra, gigantic slabs of rock like Mount Rushmore, or for you Southerners, uh, uh, for you Southerners, what is it down there in Georgia? Uh, Stone Mountain, a gigantic rock down there. That is the word Petra. And it's the same word, by the way, that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them, he is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, Petra. Petra meaning the foundation of rock, a gigantic mass of of rock. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has taken this verse, verse 18, and because of the root in Peter's word, Petra, because of the root uh, is, is rock, they have interpreted this to, verse to mean that Jesus, when he says, on this rock I will build my church, that what Jesus is saying is that the church will be established by Peter and that Peter really, he's the first pope. But that is not what the verse is saying. Peter is Petra. He's a little rock. He's a little thing. He's a, 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 something he'd pick up, a stone. So, so Jesus is saying, you are Petra, it's a little rock, and on this Petra, this cliff, this huge mass of rock, I will build my church. So what's the cliff then? What is this huge mass of rock that Jesus is referring to? Well, the rock that Jesus is referring to is Jesus himself. He's referring to the confession that, that Peter just made. What did Peter just say? He said, he, he said you are Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and so if you do a very simple word study of the word rock in the Bible, you will find 
uh, and this will become obvious to you, you will find that you'll never see it used to describe a man. If you look up every verse in the Bible that uses the word rock, you'll never see it used in that way. Who is it always used to describe? Always, every time. God. The word used in a symbolic way first appears in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He is the rock, it says in Deuteronomy 32. He's the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of truth, without injustice and righteous and upright is he. So that's just the beginning because throughout the Bible from that point on you see it over and over uh, used for God uh, in in this way. In 2 Samuel it says, and he said, the Lord my rock, this is David speaking, and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock, in him will I trust. In the Psalms, you see over and over, for, who, for, for what God saved the Lord, who, who is a rock, can save us. And, 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 and then in Isaiah and Jeremiah, the prophets use it in a similar way. Speaking to Israel, um, in Isaiah, it says, Because you have forgotten the God of thy salvation and have not been mindful of the rock thy strength. That's why you're having the trouble you are. You've forgotten the rock. And so uh, Jesus, uh, he, he would never use the word rock, which is synonymous with God, to describe a man such as Peter or any other man. Even, even Peter himself in 1 Peter two, uh, verse chapter 2 uses the word rock to describe God. So in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 18, when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, he's saying that the church will be built on the very one who Peter had just declared was the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, Jesus. Jesus was referring to uh, himself. The church is built on the rock, Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful foundation uh, that we have. And then the verse goes on to say, And the gates of hell, or Hades, Hades, hell, will not prevail against it. Now, this is a verse which is one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible. That the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The Bible teaches that Satan was once an angel by the name of Lucifer, lived in heaven. He was one of the most beautiful angels. He was way up there in the hierarchy of the angelic realm, but he was not satisfied with his position in heaven because there is one thing that he didn't have. That God had that he didn't, the worship and praises of the angelic realm. And he wanted that. He wanted that worship. So he rebelled, didn't like his the position uh, that he had. So he rebelled against it. And, and the Bible says that a third of the angels in heaven rebelled with him. And, and they were cast from heaven. Jesus in Luke uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 18 says, I was there when Satan fell like lightning from, from heaven. And so the Bible teaches that from the moment that Lucifer fell from heaven, that he's been filled with fury ever since. Intense anger about what has happened to him. 
And ever since he and his now fallen angelic host have been engaged in a war in the spiritual realm against God, against his church, against his people, against you and I. And his primary objective, his greatest desire is to prevent the church, to prevent God's people, to prevent you from bringing glory to God. Satan is real, brothers and sisters. And the biggest lie he's ever perpetrated on the world, other than there is no God, is that there is no Satan. This may sound irreverent. It's not, but it may sound like it. But I believe in the existence of Satan as much as I believe in the existence of God. I've had many, many times more than I could count at this point where I've experienced the glorious presence of God. But there have been a few times where I have been right there in the very presence of Satan. But you know something, my experience is not what matters. What matters is what Jesus teaches, what matters what the Word of God says. It says that there are both things, the existence of God and the existence of Satan. And the good news is that the Bible teaches that a Christian who is following Jesus, who is abiding with the Lord, has not the slightest thing to fear with Satan. Not the slightest thing to fear. First John uh, says that greater is the power in you uh, than the power in this world, referring to, to Satan. And, and I have found that to be true, exceedingly and abundantly true. And, and here in verse 18, the good news continues. It says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we may be in a spiritual battle, but we do not have to worry about ever losing it if we are abiding with, the, with Christ. Now, the interesting thing, though, about this verse is that it's yet another one of those verses that people have sort of turned it on its head to mean something that it doesn't mean at all. Uh, usually when pastors teach this verse, uh, the picture they paint is sort of the church being attacked uh, by Satan. You know, Satan's the attacker and, and the church is on the defense. And, you know, it's sort of like this movie. I, if someone can remember it, let me know. I just can't remember. It's one of those movies from the 50s or 60s, you know, one of those invasion of the body snatcher movies and, 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 and the world is being, you know, attacked by aliens and, and, and there, it's, there's some city is the scene or the, where all the events are taking place and, and there's a church in the side of the city and, and uh, outside the church everything's being destroyed. Inside there's like these people huddled up there singing hymns and stuff like that and, 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 um, and you know, you see these explosions outside and there's just nothing but rubble, but then there's this church which, like, magically, it's just standing. And, and, and so I, I forget the name of it, but, but that's sort of the kind of image that a lot of pastors paint uh, when they are teaching on this verse. Satan's on the offensive, the church is on the defensive. 
uh, and the church is sort of huddled up inside a bunker somewhere, and you know, Satan's outside relentlessly pounding it, and, but never quite getting in. And, uh, but, you know, interpreting the person that way is an absolute travesty. Jesus is saying exactly the opposite thing. They have taken a verse which was meant to just inspire inspire confidence and faith in every Christian believer, a verse that was meant to just to demonstrate the awesome power and, and strength and, and, and mission of the church and, and turned it sort into this, the church into this wimpy sort of run for cover thing where, you know, we're in survival mode and we get inside a, a, a church or a cubbyhole somewhere and, and, and we, you know, hope Satan doesn't get us sort of thing and, well, we can always rely on this verse, but, but let's look at the verse again. Jesus says, on on this rock, I will build my church and the gates, it says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, think about it for a second. When was the last time a neighbor or someone was mad at you and they ripped the gates off their house and came over to your house and showed up and knocked on your door. And they're like, they have this gate. What's this gate in your hand? Well, I'm coming to get you. I'm on the offensive, you know. Wrong. I mean, did you ever, did the Romans, when they went out and conquered cities, rip the gates from the Roman walls out and come into the city? Here we are with our gates, you know. That, that's not what happened. And, and that's not the, the image that, um, that Jesus is giving here. Uh, in the ancient world, gates were symbols of strength and power of a city. Cities were often fortified. They'd have these very wide, tall, thick walls around them. And the gate, since it was the entrance of the city, it, although it was made of wood and in a sense was more vulnerable, since it was the gateway to the city, it would be more fortified. Sometimes there were multiple gates, but there were sentries there and these strong towers. You're familiar with that word in the Bible. These strong towers will be built up around the gate, fortification. So when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he is talking about the church on the offensive. Satan's on the defense. Satan's getting his gate pounded on. Satan's in the bunker. He is talking about you and I going out in the world. Now, I'm not going, talking about going out and trying to find the devil. Never do that. But, but you just go out. Jesus is talking about going out and, and defeating the powers of B through the power and love and grace of the gospel by simply obeying the great commission in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, go out into all the world. Remember what Jesus said in 1 John 3. It said, for this purpose Jesus came to destroy the works of, of Satan. Of course, the only way that can be done if we obey Jesus' commission and, and, and we go out. 
Remember, First uh, John 5 says this. It says the whole world is under the sway or under the control of, of the evil one. So when, when Jesus uh, in Matthew 28 is saying going out, uh, the world out there it may be under the sway of the enemy, but as we go out, the, the, Jesus is saying the gates of hell will not prevail against you, meaning you will prevail over Satan. You will be fruitful. You will be a light to the world. You'll be salt of the earth. And, and, and as you share Christ, as, as you bless the world, and, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. It's an encouraging verse. It's an exciting verse. And I hear people say things all the time, things like, you know, I just can't take my job anymore, you know, it's just so evil, you know. And then they're not talking about like working in a strip joint. They're talking about working, you know, in some strip mall somewhere. I shouldn't use the word strip mall, but uh, a, a corporate office building, and uh, it's just a normal job, which has sort of normal evil, you know, because the whole world's under the sway of the devil, and that's what jobs are like. And they're like, well, I need to go into business for myself or dig ditches or whatever, because I just this is just too much. The Lord couldn't want, you know. Doesn't James say, you know, pure and false religion is this, keeping yourself pure from the world or not polluted? And so, and, and so they get into this mentality, but what has happened? They've refused to accept this promise of Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18. They have been sent into the world, into that job, by God. They've been sent there by the Lord. But they're allowing the gates of hell to prevail against them. Let me say this to each one of you. If you have opened your hearts to Jesus, knocking on your heart, you've opened the door, and you have allowed Jesus Christ to come in and allowed him to save you, save your soul. If you have responded to that knocking and let him in, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That is what God is. That's the man or woman that God has created you to be. Strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We're going through judges on Sunday evening and there's that story with Gideon and Israel has just been completely impoverished by the Midianites. And they sort of live in caves and cubby holes. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press which is this little small area. You're supposed to thresh wheat in, the, in, in large areas, and he's in this little small area threshing wheat because he's scared, he's terrified of the Midianites. And, and the Lord shows up, and uh, the angel Lord shows up and says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, who are you talking about? That does not describe me. But slowly the Lord showed him who he was created to be, strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And the gates of hell did not prevail against him. You go out into the world. 
you go out into that job. You go out into that dorm or neighborhood or, or your house, wherever, that, that God has sent you and you be the man or woman that God has created you to be. And the gates of hell will not prevail against you. you know, Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, encouraging the church in Thessalonica not to retreat but to stay in the battle, said this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. If you feel the world is closing in around you, that it's just too intense, too evil, too overwhelming... Don't retreat into your man-made castle. Now, ironically, that's just what Satan wants you to do. He wants you and I to retreat into our man-made uh, castles. Uh, but we, we, we can't do that. We need to remember this promise of Jesus. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Go out rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, in everything uh, give thanks and, and watch the gates of hell crash down. You will bear fruit in your life. The salt of your life will start having that effect. You will see people around you, you know. They'll start saying sorry when they use foul language. They'll start cleaning up their act. Asking you for help when their life starts falling apart. Someone may even ask you, how do I get saved? How do I get saved like you? Where do I get that peace that you have, that rest? How do I find eternal life? The gates of hell will not prevail against you. Jesus promises here they will crumble because of what God is doing in your life. The gates of hell did not prevail against uh, Jesus. Uh, he died. He was uh, resurrected from the, from the dead. Neither will they prevail against his church. Neither will they prevail against you. Nothing is more tragic than to see churches that are just inward-focused that exists supremely to meet the needs of their own members. Forgetting about a dying world that desperately needs the love of God. They have singles groups. They have married groups. They have overcomers groups of every single type that you can think of. They get their weekend rafting trips. They have ice cream socials, uh, Christian cruises, church picnics, bingo, whatever, you know, but, but there's no outward focus. There's no outreach, no emphasis at all of reaching the community around them, serving the community around them, blessing the community uh, uh, around them. Church becomes this inward sort of, of thing, you know, the, the world out there is evil, you know. We got to stick to each other. We're going to lose this battle. Of course, there's a grain of truth in that, more than a grain of truth. But, but churches need to be outward focused. We need to go out there to prevail against the gates of hell. I was reading this article in this secular 
magazine, and it was just about this particular denomination out west somewhere. It's a worldwide denomination, but there was this community of these uh, believers, and they were just interviewing them, and it just became apparent they didn't know anyone else. They were asking these little old ladies, and it was the whole thing was about how people in this community lived so long. It was actually a testimony to the Lord, to be honest with you. But there was this one piece of the article that was really bothering me, and and they were because they were interviewing these little old ladies, and they're like, "We don't know anyone outside of our church. You know, we we got all all the all our interests, and and you know, they're." we have in common and if I go out and try to meet other friends they're just not interested in the same thing very tragic thing notwithstanding the fact that God was doing a work in this community but there they were inside their man-made castles right where Satan uh, wanted them to be in, in many respects away from the gates his gates that are a stronghold uh, in the world and so uh, a ship, this may sound a little corny, but a ship was not meant to stay in the harbor. And that's the truth. You know, a, a ship was meant to be out at sea. There's storms out there. There's waves. There, there's always the risk of getting flipped or whatever, or running into uh, the rocks. But, but, but it was not made to be there. And, and, you know, in Ephesians 6, which I, I, I quoted earlier, where, where Paul says to the church in Ephesus, be strong, O Lord, and in, uh, in his mighty power. It's a whole chapter about spiritual warfare where we get on the armor. We put on the armor, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel. And you don't get all armored up to, like, sit inside your castle, right? I mean, that's not why... People get armored up. No, they get armored up so to, to go out. That's where God has, has sent us. Mighty men and women of valor are supposed to be not hunkering down in the castle. They're supposed to be um, out. And so then it continues here in verse 19, chapter 16. It says, And I will give you, he's speaking to Peter here, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, again, uh, that verse has been taken to mean that, you know, sort of the, the Pope or some other individual has, has sort of power to keep people in the church and out of the church, uh, and that this was given specifically to Peter but two chapters from here in, in, in chapter 18 of Matthew, it's given to all the disciples, which I believe means carries on to, to you and, and me. And so what Jesus is saying here is that he doesn't send us out, out of the castle. He doesn't send us out sort of as orphans without arming us. He sends us out here, uh, out of the castle, with, with keys, with weapons. Now, not the weapons that the, that the world wages war with, but he says here, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. People interpret that different ways. I personally believe uh, that that is speaking about prayer, the, the power of a prayer, the authority that God has given to every man and woman 
and child who is a Christian to, to pray and believe and receive according to the will of God. Now, there's a weapon for you. There is a weapon for you. So he's, he's, he's almost sending them um, out here. He's speaking to Peter individually. He made the confession two chapters later in Matthew 18. He, he gives it to really to all of us. And then in verse uh, 20, it says, Then he commanded his disciples that they, should not tell, that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, what's all that about? Why would Jesus say that? Now, at the time... the concept of what the Messiah would be when he came to the earth was much different than what it is today. At that time, they believed the Messiah would come back to sort of be the general and overtake Rome. In fact, there were people who lived within a few hundreds before Jesus, Jews who had lived a few hundred years before Jesus and and within a hundred years after him, who said, I'm the Messiah. And they got a great gathering to, to go and follow them. And they were all killed. The Messiah was executed. One of them had his head cut off by the Romans. And then lots of Jews themselves, there would be tremendous suffering. And they would go into, to be sold off into slavery. And it would just be tremendous misery on the nation of Israel. And, and the time was not ripe for the disciples to go out and say, well, you know, Jesus the Messiah, we, we found him. And that, that would take place supremely when he's raised from the dead and then he, uh, he, he gives his power. The disciples are imbued with power from on high uh, in the book of Acts and they go out at that point and say, we know the Messiah. He's a lot different than the Messiah you thought would come. Yes, he will come someday uh, in sort of the dreadful day of the Lord in judgment, but he's come and, and, and he, he is a Messiah of love and peace and he wants to reconcile uh, you with God and so the gospel of grace. And so I just want to just conclude with this, that if anyone here has never received Jesus as the Son of the living God. If, if, if you are that kind of person who God has always been, sort of like the conception of that first Messiah, he's going to come down and he's going to, he's going to wreak havoc on my life because, uh, you know, there's so much sin in it or whatever. Well, the, God is angry with your sin and, and he is going to judge, judge it. But the question is, is he going to judge it by accepting what his son Jesus Christ did for you on the cross taking the penalty for your sin, or or are you going to take that judgment on yourself? The Bible says that Jesus is knocking on the door of our hearts and saying, you know, I I can take that judgment for you. Or you can can reach out and, and take what I have done for you on the cross rather than taking that judgment on yourself. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, if you've heard that knocking, but you've never asked them into your heart, please come up and we can pray after the service, you and I, and we can settle that matter. 
and you can have eternal life, that abundant life here on this world, and, and so much purpose. You can, you can go out. You can leave. You know, it's interesting that believers and unbelievers, they're all hunkering down in their man-made castles, terrified of what's out there. The great thing about being saved by God is, is, is that fear over time dissipates the phobias and all the weirdness, and we can go out. And the gates of hell, that hellish world out there, will not prevail uh, against us, will not prevail against the joy and, and rest and peace that God has given us. If that describes you, if you've never invited Jesus in your life, please come and talk with me after the service, and we'll settle that. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for this glorious, wonderful, good news. that just leaps out at us every week, Lord, on Sunday mornings throughout the week as we're in your word, as we're studying the Bible. Grace, your grace, it's all about you, everything you've done for us. You've done it all for us, Lord. God, what a wretched life we would have if we tried to go out and work our way into your uh, into your heaven, into your presence. Jesus has done that for us. We thank you, Lord. God, we need your grace to, to live out a response to what Christ has done in us. God, to, to go out into the world, to not be overwhelmed by it, but to, to, to be strong, in you, Lord, and in your mighty power. We pray for an abundance of grace to do just that, Lord. And I just pray, Lord, if there's anyone in here that has not asked you in, Lord, to prick their hearts, that it would be, that they would be opened up, their hearts opened up for you, Lord. And God, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, God bless you. You are dismissed. If anyone needs prayer, please come up.